So we're going to start question period right away. Um, I'm just, I, 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 have to, I have to tell you, uh, once again, tomorrow at 3 p.m. at the U of University of Lethbridge Library, uh, I believe room L1060, yes, L1060, the University of Lethbridge Library, um, Michael will be doing another presentation uh, on this topic, so if you get a chance, please attend if you are entertained here, or if at the end of things there's some questions you want answered. Next week, same time, same channel, right here, we, we go to the chickens. Should backyard hens be allowed within city limits? Um, my mom and a group of hens get together once a week, but this is actual chickens. This is, this is actual chickens. Actual chickens in the backyard kept in cages, I assume. Uh, the speaker is Kelty Baird, and I've heard a rumor that there will be a very special topical dish served. So yes, next week is Lethbridge going to the chickens. Ladies and gentlemen, once again, Michael Byers. So I, I think we can all agree that that joke was a real turkey. Are we on here? Uh, and one thing to say about tomorrow's talk at the university, um, it will be very similar to today, but there will be um, sound and light elements to it as well. I'm actually going to show a video that is of one of these um, uh, launches and landings. So there's a little bit of enticement for anyone who wants the, the, uh, the audio-visual version of what I'm uh, discussing with you. Okay, questions, comments? Hi, Michael. Henning yes. Wendell here. Um, having heard, of course, your presentation, every presentation you've made here, each with such a different topics, there must be all an array of scientists lining up in each of those topics. But now, I'm just gonna pick on one aspect to question you on. How do you foresee the jurisdictional, the legal aspects in terms of the mining. I'm thinking just Hans Island up there, Canada and Denmark, we're having lots of fun. Who has uh, jurisdiction? What about space? Yeah. Uh, thank you. Um, excellent question, as always. Um, in 1967, the uh, Soviet Union and the United States led the negotiation of the Outer Space Treaty. Uh, and Article 2 of the Outer Space Treaty prohibits the, quote, national appropriation of the moon and other celestial bodies, end quote. Two years later, Neil Armstrong set foot on the moon. And he and Buzz Aldrin planted a flag, a US flag. But they did not claim the moon for the United States of America. So there was an understanding during the Cold War between the Soviet Union and the United States um, that, that space was off limits for territorial claims. Um, that decision, that mutual decision, is now being questioned. Because back in 1967, they did not foresee that private companies would develop space launch 
spaceflight capabilities. Um, but now they have. And we also know that there are precious minerals and ice on asteroids. So in 2015, the United States adopted the US Space Act, which accords rights in US law to US companies to extract minerals from space and profit from them. And the US State Department argues that this would not be national appropriation because they would not be claiming the asteroid as US territory. They would merely be extracting a resource much like a fishing boat on the high seas. This is a live debate. There is no answer yet. Um, and, and I'm actually writing a book now, um, the title of which is Who Owns Outer Space? Because you put your finger on the central question of the moment. My name is uh, Knut Peterson. Thanks a lot for coming again, Michael. It's great to have you every couple of years. Uh, my question relates to uh, UFOs. Uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, whether you actually believe there's some of them out there, or because that clutters up the space, could clutter up the space as well. Mm -hmm. uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, there's a fair amount of people out there, some fairly educated people that think that uh, UFOs are populating our space. <laughs> I. Uh, I enjoy messing with the minds of my students on these questions. Um, so space is infinite. We already know that there are millions of planets that are in the Goldilocks zone, not too hot, not too cold. In, in, in the, the part of the universe that we can see, um, but the distances are also immense, and, and, and people have trouble wrapping their heads around the, the distances involved. I mean, the nearest star that, that could potentially have a planet supporting life is more than 20 light years away. Um, and, and, and that is, is, unless we invent warp speed technology, is, is a, a, a barrier of, of distance that um, I, I doubt we'll overcome for, for thousands of years. And that's just the nearest, right, of, of, of the millions and millions and literally infinite number of planets out there. We also know that, that water is, is remarkably common. Uh, there, 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 there's water on Mars, there's water on, on some of the moons around uh, Saturn, uh, there's water on asteroids. Um, it seems to be a pretty common thing. There are also amino acids on asteroids, right? It's, it's entirely possible that the precursors of life here on Earth actually were brought here uh, by a meteorite, an asteroid that impacted this planet. So we could all be aliens. 
or at least descended from alien life in some microscopic primitive form. Um, now, there's something called the Fermi paradox, which basically says that in an infinite universe with an infinite number of planets that are suitable for life, and, and now with water potentially on most of them, statistically, there, there's intelligent life out there, right? I mean, I mean how, how accidental do we think we are? Right, uh, that that primordial sludge that sparked a chemical reaction, um, perhaps with amino acid, uh, acids from an asteroid. Um, but but statistically, scientifically, in an infinite universe, this has happened an infinite number of times. Uh, and and the infant, the universe is really really old, right? The Earth is relatively young, so many, if not most, of these other intelligent life forms will have been around for longer than us, will have more advanced technologies, will perhaps be able to conquer the challenges of, 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 of inter-solar system travel. So the Fermi paradox is, well, why aren't they here? And, and there are various fun explanations of that. Um, one of which is, this is the one I like most, that we're actually living in a nature reserve. <laughs> uh, uh, the, the, other, the other possibility is that we're just not very interesting. Um, and, and the distances are great, and perhaps they, they do have economic considerations, and they see no value in coming here. Um, but the other possibilities are that every intelligent species basically destroys itself, like we're doing with climate change. Right, and never becomes an interplanetary species or an intersolar system species. Maybe we just hit this barrier in terms of technological development, and we all fizzle out. Um, but but the but the point to answer your question is that scientifically, yeah, intelligent alien life, no, almost no question, almost certain scientifically. Why isn't it here? We don't know. I'm actually more interested in the issues that arise if they arrive and, and are benevolent. Because, I mean, if they're not benevolent, it's game over, right? Because their technologies are so much higher than ours. This idea that we're going to send the military out to defend ourselves against aliens <laughs> is ludicrous. Um, but if they're benevolent, OK, how do we interact with them? And I actually have my students think about what are the fundamental rules of interaction? Well, I. My students and I can only think of two fundamental rules of interstellar law. Number one, diplomatic immunity, which essentially is don't eat the messenger. <laughs> and number two is that promises must be kept, particularly when we're talking about the time and distances involved in, in space. Those are pretty fundamental. Uh, those are the, the two core principles of international law on this planet, diplomatic immunity and something called pacta sunt servanta, which is why we're able to actually enter into treaties with other countries. But apart from that, who knows? Maybe the aliens will have some ideas as to the kind of rules and relationships we might have. Um, but I'm not expecting to see any little green men. Um, uh, each of us individually is here for such a brief millisecond of geological time. It might happen. It might well happen. 
But in my lifetime, chances are not. Thanks. Uh, thank you, um, Michael, for your very interesting talk. Uh, I'm Rena Wass, and um, the space is, it's the last frontier. And we are already messing it up with uh, space debris. I wrote an article about 10 years ago about ring planets, and we've got a ring of garbage around mm -hmm. our planet. Yep. And all the litigation, the lawyers are really having a field day with this. Um, and militarization really scares me too. Mm -hmm. But something a little closer to home is light pollution and how we have messed up the sky with, um, you know, unneeded light shining straight up. I was just reading um, some Russian company is now got this harebrained idea to put advertising in space. Uh, corporate logos, Coca-Cola, McDonald's, huge, huge um, lit up signs, 300, almost 300 kilometers in space that could be seen for forever almost. Mm -hmm. um, is the UN can they get involved and put in some measures to protect us uh, from this kind of thing? I don't, if you can comment on that, I'd appreciate it, thanks. Yeah, I, I live on Salt Spring Island, which means that, that we're halfway between Vancouver and Victoria and, and with substantial hills blocking out the, the light from those two cities. And, and I feel incredibly fortunate that my children can walk outside on any clear evening and actually see the Milky Way. Very few people can do that. Um, most of my students have never seen the Milky Way. Most of my students, until they come to my class, have never seen the International Space Station, which is ridiculously easy to see and mind-blowing um, when you see it. Uh, we pass over Lethbridge every, uh, uh, every month or so uh, on a perfect pass on a clear night. You should see it if you haven't. Go to the NASA website and, you know, tap in Lethbridge, Alberta, and it will tell you when. Um, but in terms of, um, of pollution, especially pollution from corporate actors, yeah, the United Nations is working on this. Um, the United Nations Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space has been in operation since 1958. It was chaired for the last two years by a Canadian named David Kendall. Um, who before that was senior scientific advisor to the Canadian Space Agency. Uh, he, he's now part of my team at, at UBC. Um, and, uh, and, and they are working on this because governments are starting to realize these challenges. Um, and it's not so much new international law as international guidelines which are made binding through national laws. So just to give you one example, if you're a private company and you want to launch a satellite from the United States, from French Guiana, which is uh, Air, um, European Space Agency, uh, from Japan, from Russia, from India, you now, 2019, have to have technology built into that satellite so at the end of its operational life, it can fire boosters and set itself on a re-entry trajectory. So it will come back to Earth and burn up in the atmosphere. That's a technological requirement now under the national legal systems of those different countries. Now they haven't dealt with advertising in space yet, but 
but I'm confident that they will because they're showing the ability to deal with these, these other challenges. Um, I mean, it, it's complicated by the fact that, um, that these, these, these countries also have substantial military assets in space, so we have competition and, and pr preparation for conflict happening at the exact same time. But most of the military assets in space are there to provide communications and remote sensing for forces on the ground. And they're actually acutely vulnerable. You can't hide something in orbit. And it's on a predictable trajectory, right? They're very fragile instruments. We know where they are exactly, and we know where they're going. And this creates a kind of mutually assured destruction scenario. We could start taking out each other's satellites, right? But we are just as exposed as any other country. Um, and so, and this is the final thing I'll say on this. Um, Canada has one military satellite. It's called Sapphire. And it does a wonderfully Canadian thing. It looks up from low Earth orbit and identifies pieces of space debris which are then all this data that we collect is fed to the United States Space Surveillance Network, which is run by the US military. All of these space objects, larger than about six centimeters across now, are, are identified, either from Earth radar or from Sapphire. And we catalog all them and we share all this information with everyone. So that the Russians can see because of a Canadian satellite that a piece of space debris is coming towards one of their satellites so that they can boost it out of the way. This is not perfect, this, this space conflict cooperation world that I'm describing. It's not a perfect world, but there are signs of progress. Any other questions? Yes. Thanks, Michael. Uh, Leona Jacobs. I have a couple. I had one curiosity, now I have two. Um, and the first one actually kind of ties in with what you were just talking about. With, re with respect to um, regulation. Um, so here on planet Earth, um, and especially country Canada, and especially province Alberta, there is a uh, observable disregard for regulation, okay, and a disintegration of collectivity and, and coming together and, and working together on stuff. So how does that translate into space when you have all these players, including private sector and military. Um, how will we do that? And especially when the United Nations is under attack by some of our major countries, as you are aware. That's one curiosity. So how does regulation, how will you see that playing out in the future? All seems nice and happy now, but we've seen it deteriorate in, in, on the earth here. And the second curiosity prompted by your uh, answer is about the re-entry, and you say that these things burn up. And so talk to me about what happens to the material that is supposedly burnt up, and what does that do with respect to our earthly envelope? Mm -hmm. Okay, um, those are both really big questions. Um, Regulation with regards to space is pretty good right now among the major spacefaring countries. My worry is when the flag of convenience countries get involved. 
I'm not worried about the United States or Russia or, or China. They're big actors. They've got a lot riding on a, a, a usable um, uh, domain. Um, but you know, what happens when um, a Russian company called S7 buys a repurposed oil drilling platform and pulls it down to the equator to launch satellites from international waters into geostationary orbit. You can get at that through regulation, but it, it's like regulating you know, oil tankers. It, it's, it's tough. Um, so so that, that is one of my concerns. Uh, on the optimistic side, um, the potential for punishing litigation is, is growing. So I spent a number of years working on climate change litigation um, because climate science has become good enough that we know exactly what percentage of climate change is caused by Exxon or Chevron. Right? We know exactly down to two decimal places exactly how much they've caused. So we know exactly how much sea level rise has been caused by Exxon, like, like that precisely. So when, when we get sea level rise and, and damaging uh, storm surges um, and, and you know, the city of Richmond, BC is looking to recover $10 billion, well, they can sue Exxon in a court in California against its assets. And this is what we did with the tobacco industry, remember? So it's happening on climate change. It can happen on space debris. And I have a colleague at the University of Texas, Austin, named Moriba Ja, fascinating guy, spent 10 years of his life um, actually landing Mars rovers, um, and, uh, and then went into academia and realized that space debris was the really big problem. He's now building um, a, a space surveillance network that is so precise, more precise than the government one, because there are literally thousands and thousands of amateur astronomers with decent-sized telescopes. So it's crowdsourcing uh, information data on space debris and, and, and satellites and other uh, spacecraft. So part of his goal, and this is where he and I are working together, is that if he can get the science good enough, we can actually tell that that, that accident that took out that billion dollar communication satellite was caused by a piece of debris that resulted from an earlier collision that was in turn caused by a company not deorbiting its satellite at the end of its life. Oh, they were acting negligently. They were a, a direct contributing causal factor in the loss of that billion dollar satellite. Bang, they can be sued. You have to overcome the causation issue, which is a science issue. And at that point, the, the tort lawyers are onto it. Um, so the, the, again, it's not a perfect world, but, but that's what makes it really interesting is that we're, it's fast moving, it's important, it's understudied, and there are partial solutions to a lot of these problems. And there was a, the first question, second question was about stuff coming back. Uh, it's a big problem when stuff comes back that, that, that isn't just metal, that actually might have toxic materials on board. You'll remember Cosmos 954 that came down in the Northwest Territories. If you want, um, my, my son, the same son, the older one, Cameron, and I co-authored a piece in 2017 on um, toxic 
rocket stages coming down in the Canadian Arctic. If you just Google Toxic Splash and Michael Byers, it's an open access um, article um, at Cambridge University Press. Okay, next question. Dave Major, uh, thanks for your talk. My question is kind of sort of related, and that is like all, uh, all of your discussion uh, leads me to think there's a lot of stuff in the background that we don't really know. And relative to the current situation, how does a country like Canada protect itself from software that's hidden inside uh, packages that we're going to use and uh, mm -hmm. the country that of origin can see what we're doing? Yeah. Um, you know, I mentioned that no country in the last 12 years has used a missile against a satellite. Part of the reason they haven't done that is because they've realized that cyber attacks are much more effective than, than kinetic physical attacks. So um, anti-satellite warfare has moved into the cyber domain um, because these satellites have to communicate with ground stations. And, uh, and so now the different countries are working hard on quantum uh, computing uh, and therefore unbreakable uh, uh, codes for satellite communications. So, so yeah, you're, you're, this is a dynamic field and, and the cyber world is part of it. So too is artificial intelligence. You know, we're not going to mine an asteroid with human beings. There will be uh, autonomous robots that will do that because maintaining a human being in space is a really expensive exercise. You have to feed them, you have to water them, uh, you have to provide oxygen, all that's really difficult, expensive, so just send robots. But, but, but before we, we go on, and I'm going to abuse the podium and hold off Jim for a second here. Um, to come back to the stuff that, that, that is positive that people don't know about. Um, back in 1979, the Soviet Union came together with Canada, France, and the United States. And they created a new international organization. It's called Cospus Sarsat. Cospus is a, a, a Soviet name for, for their satellites, some of their satellites. Sarsat, uh, Satellite Search and Rescue. And what they decided to do in 1979 with this international organization, which is based in Montreal to this day, is, is that they would, um, they would put equipment on their satellites that would receive emergency signals from search and rescue beacons activated on the surface of the Earth. And, and if, you, if you cooperate, then you pick up the signal much more quickly. So the first rescue was, was done in 1982 in, in, in northern Canada. Um, and, and a plane crashed, and they had one, one of these prototype search and rescue beacons, uh, which they activated. Um, and uh, that was picked up by the first Soviet satellite that had the receiving technology on board. Uh, and the Soviet Union immediately, um, um, actually automatically transmitted that information from the Soviet satellite to a experimental ground station in Ottawa, which then phoned up the search and rescue headquarters in Yellowknife and went out to the location, which they were able to, to determine using the Doppler effect, the change in the frequency of the signal as the satellite moved across uh, the sky and rescued the four people. 1982, heart of the Cold War. 
Every year now, thousands of people around the world are rescued by this system, which now involves dozens of satellites, mostly in, in mid-Earth orbit, the same satellites that provide GPS. Um, and every aircraft has a, a beacon system. Um, every ship, every boat owned by a sensible person, and any person who goes into the backcountry now, a prospector, a hunter, um, a hiker, a kayaker, is insane if they don't have a $300 beacon with them. These are lifesavers. And they happen because of cooperation between now Russia and the West involving space. The other example, and I'm holding Jim off here, because this is even better, is there's something called the International Disasters Charter that was created in 2000. Um, it now involves uh, over 200 countries and territories around the planet. And uh, literally, dozens of space agencies and private space companies. And the way it works is that if there's a disaster in your country, an earthquake, a hurricane, an oil spill, a volcanic, a volcanic eruption, human cause, natural cause, if there's a big disaster, one of the most useful things to have is high-quality Earth imaging, real-time mapping. So you can tell which buildings were destroyed. You can tell which roads have been compromised. You can tell which runways are intact and which ones are not from space, right, instantly. So the way this works is that if you're the government of Haiti and there's an earthquake, you don't have a satellite, right? You don't have this technology. You phone one phone number. And there are technicians who immediately calculate what would best serve your needs, which satellite has the right imagery equipment on it and is in the right place at the right time, and all of those space agencies and private companies have agreed in advance to task that satellite on request. So within the space of a couple of hours, you've got the best imaging available in the world so that your emergency response can be fully informed. It's not just the Haitis that use this. Canada calls upon the International Disasters Charter. The floods in Calgary, imagery. The floods on the Ottawa River, imagery, right? Uh, around the world, oil spills, earthquakes, volcanic eruptions, literally hundreds of these requests each year. And the imagery, and this is the best part, the imagery is not only provided instantly, but it's provided for free, including by the private companies. So the most frequently tasked satellite in the world for the International Disasters Charter is Radarsat 2 which was built in a public-private partnership between the Governor of Canada and McDonald Detweiler Associates of Richmond, BC. It's still up there, it's still imaging, and it's called on at least once a month by the International Disasters Charter, and no one seems to know about this, right? And we all like, like, hyperventilate about problems with Russia. Well, yeah, we have problems with Russia, we have problems with China, but when it comes to saving lives, when it comes to the Good Samaritan Principle, we're working together perfectly, and we're using space. 
Sorry, Jim, I don't know if you've run out of time or the, not. No, the ever-patient oh. Jim will get his question in. Go ahead, I will, Jim. I will sneak it in. Thanks so much. I'm Jim Byrne from the University of Lethbridge. Mike, a delight as always. Um, uh, effectively, what you said is because of space debris, and uh, I think Neil deGrasse Tyson, I saw him say, a fleck of paint moving at tens of thousands of kilometers an hour along a trajectory that's different from your particular device is all you might need. Force equals mass times acceleration. Um, you know, the, so what you're saying in a way is we're, space is infinite, but we're running out of space. Um, and as you are well aware from the work we've talked about mm -hmm. on climate change, there are some engineering types who are saying we should put gigantic shields in space, which of course are gonna take up way more space than almost anything else does by orders of magnitude. You know, shields to shield the earth to allow us to keep burning fossil fuels. That's an interesting concept, probably not viable, but it does bring up the question is, you know, how do we, we're almost gonna have to start to lease space in mm -hmm. space, perhaps. You could comment on that, thanks. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the only sane response to climate change is to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Everything else is, is, is inefficient um, and, and, and likely futile, right? Uh, we, we know how to reduce emissions. Um, uh, and the, the good news for Alberta is that, that you've got the best opportunities for wind and solar power in the world. So you can remain a very successful energy province and leave the oil in the ground. Um, that's, that's really good news for Alberta, uh, not bad news. Um, but yeah, these, these, these um, uh, uh, pie in the eye, pardon the pun, uh, uh, solutions are, are, are just that. Um, but let me talk about it. An, a, a, a different Earth orbit that I haven't spoken much about yet, and that's geostationary orbit. Um, and, and, and geostationary orbit is a long ways out. It's, it's 35,000 kilometers above Earth. And it's special because if you put something in geostationary orbit, um, it, it will move at the same rate that the Earth is turning. So it will actually stay above the same location on Earth at all times. Okay? It's moving very, very fast. The Earth is moving pretty fast also. But the combination just matches up perfectly 35,000 kilometers up, which is fantastic if uh, you want to broadcast satellite television. And, and some of you have been receiving satellite TV for decades. Well, you've been receiving it um, probably from Telesat. Um, from, from geostationary orbit. But because of, 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 of the nature of geostationary orbit, there's, there's only a limited number of spots, and you can't put satellites too close together because then the frequencies of the transmission start to interfere with each other. So way back in, in the 1970s, um, the spacefaring countries looked at each other and said, this is, this is crazy. The, 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 we're going to mess up geostationary orbit pretty quickly. With, with, with you know, just 100 satellites? So they, 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 they searched around for an institutional answer and they stumbled upon the International Telecommunications Union, which is an international organization that's been in existence since the middle of the, um, middle of the 19th century. It used to be the, the International Telegraph Union. 
And the International Telecommunications Union, renamed, <laughs> is now um, the referee for geostationary orbit. And if you want to put a, a, a satellite in geostationary orbit, you have to apply for a slot and a frequency. Um, and it's not done on a first-come, first-served basis because they reserve spots for developing countries that don't yet have the technology or the finances to seize these opportunities. It's a pretty amazing example. And again, it started during the Cold War and it continues today. So a lot of people are saying is that we need to expand the mandate of the ITU to include mid-Earth orbit and especially low-Earth orbit uh, to actually have international regulation. That's a pretty big ask given the state of international relations today. But again, these things happened during the Cold War when we were on the very edge of nuclear holocaust. So can we cooperate with Russia and China on these things? I think so. <laughs>